All right, thank you so much. Welcome again. I know you guys were not maybe tired of hearing from me. I don't know. I talk a lot here at the church, and they keep giving me a mic, so I'm going to do it again. So uh, as a little side note, I just told Ansel this. I, I saw you in, like, Facebook memories. That's how I keep track of my life anymore. Like, what's happening this one year ago? Oh, my son was born. It's probably his birthday. Okay. Like... <laughs> This is the, uh, the five-year anniversary of my very first sermon I preached out in Girdwood. And uh, probably if anybody here is looking to start preaching and they're wondering what it's going to be like five years on, does it get any easier is the main question I had. Like, does it get any easier? Do you get any less nervous? And I'm, I'm so happy to tell you guys that no, not at all. <laughs> Anyways, let's look at our text today. Uh, <laughs> it was really great to worship with you guys today. If you got your Bibles or even maybe you have your old scripture journals, we're going to be in the book of Mark chapter 5 today. Mark chapter 5, go ahead and make your way there. Today we're going to be looking at what's quickly becoming one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. So the last couple of weeks, we have found uh, Jesus making his way around the Decapolis. That's a group of about 10, well not about, Exactly, Decca is 10. 10 cities that are located near the Sea of Galilee. Earlier in Mark chapter 5, we saw that Jesus, in order to save one demonized man, he caused a pretty catastrophic event. He allowed the demons that were tormenting this man, he allowed them to go into a herd of pigs, and those demons caused those pigs to throw themselves off a cliff, and they all died in the ocean or in the water. And this is a huge deal because to the people of that community, uh, those that lived in the towns and the countryside nearby, like they relied on those pigs for their livelihood. This is a big deal that they all lost a herd of about 2,000 pigs. And as we saw in verse 17 of Mark 5, they would much rather have had their herd of pigs than that one demonized guy that was always naked. He was always cutting himself with rocks. He was howling at the moon and he was living in a graveyard. But things start to change when Jesus tells this man to, instead of following Jesus and helping him out like the guy wanted to do, Jesus commanded this man to simply go home, live, and just tell people about what the Lord had done for him. And that little act caused the people of the Decapolis to begin to realize what kind of power that Jesus truly had. So that's where our passage of scripture falls today. Let's go ahead and look at verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. Verse 21 of Mark chapter 5 says this. When Jesus had crossed again in a boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came up, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Jairus asked Jesus urgently, my little daughter is near death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now this is quite a change from the attitudes of the livestock handlers that we saw earlier in the chapter, right? When those people, when they feared for their livelihoods, Mark says that they begged Jesus to leave the area. Please just go. Don't do any more work, Jesus. But here in verse 21, we see a large crowd gathered around Jesus. And in fact, if you guys would, move, you don't have to do that today, but if you guys looked at uh, the book of Luke in his telling of the very same story, Luke chapter 8 says that the crowd 
welcomed Jesus. They were waiting for him, like eagerly waiting for Jesus. Like, what a difference. But why? You know, I think the difference is probably in the delivery. They all essentially had the same information, right? That there's a demonized man plus Jesus plus pigs plus throwing themselves into the ocean. Like, that's the equation. They both got, a, got that information. Yet the two outlooks just couldn't be any more different. One group asked Jesus, they begged Jesus to leave, and the other welcomed him with open arms. See, we see that the shepherds, those tending the pigs, they only really knew of Jesus' actions. But the now formerly demonized man, he knew Jesus' identity. So Jesus is approached by a leader of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. At this point, because of what the demonized man had done in the Decapolis, Jairus knows of Jesus. He knows who he is. And I find it incredibly interesting that because Jairus knows who Jesus is, at least as far as it's been revealed to him, that Jairus does the exact same thing that the demonized man did in the prior passage when he sees Jesus. When he sees Jesus, he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs for mercy. Jairus is desperate. But I want you to catch what Jairus says to Jesus. So urgently he tells Jesus, quote, my little daughter is near death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may live. There's a lot of faith there. But don't miss the wording because it's somewhat lost in translation. We're going to see here in a minute that this girl, this little girl is actually, she's 12 years old. Like not exactly little, especially by Jewish cultural standards. She's nearing adulthood. So she's not a little girl. If we look again to that parallel passage in Luke chapter 8, we'd see in verse 42 that it's not that she was a little girl, it's that she was his little girl. You guys catch the difference there? This is this man's only daughter. It's his, it's his little girl. And you better believe he's tried absolutely everything humanly possible to keep her alive. This man's at his wit's end. This is his little girl, his only daughter. And I, you know, I have to imagine he's probably struggling to keep it together at this point. Any girl dads in the room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My little girl's nine years old. She's my world. I get an upset stomach if she feels bad in the slightest. Except last night when she watched a scary movie and then woke us up at midnight by giving her little brothers like a 10-point presentation about why she should be able to sleep in their room with the lights on. Like, it's midnight, are you joking? Go to bed. I didn't feel that bad for her then, but I usually feel real bad for her. That's not in my manuscript. That did happen last night. Oh, man, I, I really would. Though. I'd give anything to keep her from feeling any pain. She's my little girl. And Jairus is about to lose his. Let that set the tone for the day. So Jairus finds Jesus, and Jesus agrees to help immediately as, you know, this little girl, she's fading fast. Jairus knows that if Jesus just puts his hands on her, that she's going to be well. Jesus just needs to get there immediately. He's got to get there right now. So what happens next? Well, let's look at verse 25 and see what actually happens. Verse 25 says this, Now a woman who was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years 
She had endured a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she kept saying, if I only touch his clothes, I will be healed. Again, that takes a lot of faith. At once the bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Jesus knew at once that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And the disciples can't handle it. His disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing around you, and you say, who touched me? Jesus, everybody's touching you. But he looked around to see who had done it. So let's just stop there for a moment. Because it seems like we've been introduced to a brand new character right in the middle of a really tense situation. You should feel some tension. This is a big interruption. But of course, this all happens for a reason. Notice some parallels already that we have a 12-year-old girl that is fighting for her life right now. And here we have a woman that has essentially been dying for 12 years. This woman has been suffering from a, for a long time. And she's got a bleeding disorder. And in case your Levitical law is a little rusty, that means that this woman is considered unclean by all metrics. This woman couldn't enter the temple to worship. She probably has lost her husband and her family if she ever had one. And in fact, anybody that she touches would also be considered unclean. So that probably informs why she's sneaking around and she's trying to just grab his cloak instead of confronting Jesus head on. There's a lot of shame in this woman's life right now. This woman had spent everything that she had to spend on doctors and nothing was working. There's kind of an interesting tidbit. The Talmud actually lists 11 specific cures for this disease. Now, most of them are nonsense. Some of them are even like borderline superstitious. There's like code words you have to say and stuff. Uh, there's one cure that just, and I'll just read this for you. One cure recommended that the woman suffering from this, that she carry a barley corn that had been taken from the dung of a white she-donkey. Like not, not, not ingested, just to have, just, to, just a little lucky donkey poo. I don't know. Like that's humiliating, but you know this woman's desperate. You know she's probably tried this one. This is a common thread in Mark chapter 5. Human power cannot save these people. I mean, Jairus is a high-ranking official in the synagogue. He's been talking to every doctor in the city. None of them can help him. This woman, this bleeding woman, has spent her life savings trying to find some help with other people. Even the demon-possessed man from last week, no human could help him. No, no human could even hold him down. They couldn't stop him from hurting himself or from hurting anybody else. Yet all three of these people found themselves in the same place. They are bowing down at Jesus' feet, begging for mercy. And that was the right call. Because Jesus is going to do something for them. And guys, Jesus can do something for you too. See, this woman touches Jesus' robes and immediately she's healed. Now she tries to retreat to the crowd that's pressing in and around Jesus. But he knows immediately that power has somehow left him. And sidebar, I don't think that somehow Jesus was like not in control of his powers and she somehow tapped into that. I th he was in total control the whole time. He knew exactly what was going on. He allowed it to happen. Anyways, uh, so Jesus turns to find her after this happened 
And she approaches, just her whole body is just trembling in fear at this point. She's racked with sobs. Look at verse 33 here. Then the woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, and she told Jesus the whole truth. Okay, so Jairus at this point is standing by. Like, he hasn't left, according to everything that we know. He's hearing this whole story. He's know, he knows that with every single heartbeat that passes, his little girl is getting closer and closer to death. This woman, she was nobody. She had nobody. Nobody was going to miss her. She died. She'd already lived her whole adult life, but his little girl, the temple synagogue leader, his little girl is getting worse by the second. Like, Jesus, come on, man. You can speed this along, right? But look what Jesus does next. He said to her, and what does he call her? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus says, hey, Jairus, I know that your daughter needs my help, but I need to stop and tend to mine. How amazingly profound, how, how, how caring. Jesus, at this point, he knows that he's in total control of the situation, though I'm sure that Jairus does not have a grasp on the situation. This is an act of fatherly kindness that we are witnessing right now, both to this woman and to Jairus as well. Church, today, for what I want us to understand, it is that Jesus saves us into his family. Jesus saves us into his family. This woman today, she thought that the only thing that Jesus could do for her was to heal her body. And he did, and it was amazing. Like, let's not forget for a second that no human could offer even a shred of hope for over 12 years, and Jesus helped this woman without even looking at her. That's an amazing thing. But Jesus, as always, he takes it a step further. He stops her from dissolving into the crowd. He calls her out, and in the presence of everyone, Jesus calls this woman his own. Jesus changes her identity forever. You see, Jesus doesn't just save us from sin and tell us to go free. He does that, but that's not all he does for us. Because Jesus saves us into his family and he tells us, come home. Come home. Look with me to the book of Galatians. If it's easier for you, if you don't want to flip there, it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. So Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This passage is filled with hope for us. However, if you read the context of this letter, Paul is actually in anguish over the actions of the Galatian church. 
He's distressed because although they were adopted into the household of God, the church still desired to live under the law and, quote, the worthless elementary principles of the world. So there's definitely some warning in there for us all. I am very sure that many of us probably do not know how to live as a member of God's family. That's a pretty nebulous idea. Many of us, I think, probably live like a wayward teenager that only really comes home after trying everything his own way and then coming home when he's hungry or in trouble. To be sure, there is rest and there is food at the Father's house. You can find that there. But there is so much more for us, and it's like we're too afraid to ask it, like we're too ashamed to just go approach our own Father. We prefer to live under our own self-prescribed law, don't we? Now, I can only speak for myself. I'm very sure that I'm not the only person that acts this way. Guys, I am ashamed of my sin. I try so darn hard to do it right. I try to act good. I try to keep my temper in check. I try to show patience and be disciplined. And it's like I just refuse to go to the Father until I've tried absolutely everything I can to keep my sin in check. God does not tell us to just throw ourselves head first at a brick wall of human willpower and just bloody ourselves and try to crack the darn thing and then crawl back to God bloodied and bruised. God does not call us to do that. What God calls us, he says, guys, Jesus already filled me in. He paid everything you owed. Just come home. I'm your father. Just come home. God will take care of you. God cares for you, just like Jesus cared for his daughter. That's available to you. Jesus gave his daughter a new identity that day. It's that same identity that you and I carry. We belong to Jesus. We are beloved. That language you saw in Galatians where it says the spirit of adoption causes us to cry, Abba, Father, that's not a cry of desperation from a baby. That cry, it is nearness. That cry is familiarity. It's to behold with joy. Abba, Father. If we honestly can't say that we feel some tenderness as sons and daughters of the God of all creation, as heirs with Christ, if we don't feel any love and tenderness, it would be worth our time to do some introspection. That's not gonna be a waste of your time. Kindness and care are a hallmark of the Christian faith, both giving and receiving. Let's continue reading our passage today in Mark. Let's see how that TLC, that tender loving kindness, plays itself out in Jesus' ministry. So let's pick it back up. Mark 5, we're going to start in verse 35. Mark 5 says this, While he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house saying, your daughter has died. Why even trouble the teacher any longer? But Jesus, paying no attention to what was said, he told Jairus, do not be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So they came to the house of the synagogue leader where he saw noisy confusion and people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, why are you distressed and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they begin to make fun of him. That tracks. 
But Jesus forced them all outside and Jesus took the child's father and mother and his own companions and he went into the room where the child was. So these are big words that Jesus just gave Jairus. In the middle of all that's happening, Jairus got the worst news that a father can receive and Jesus has the audacity to say, don't be afraid, just believe. So Jesus takes a small group of disciples with him and they go into Jairus' home. Jesus asks why everyone's crying. And the grief is so palpable, it is so thick in the air around them that everybody just starts laughing. Like, this is not a like, ha ha, Jesus, you kidder, you got us again. This is like a hysterical disbelief. Their luck could not get any worse. The one man in all of time and creation that had the power to heal this girl walked in the door just a minute too late. Like, it just doesn't seem fair. But of course, Jesus has other plans. This is a happy ending. Verse 41. Then, gently taking the girl by the hand, Jesus said to this little girl, Talitha koum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. The girl got up at once and began to walk around. And here we see that she is 12 years old. They were completely astonished at this. Jesus strictly ordered that no one should know about this. And he told them to get her something to eat. Here's why this is one of my favorite moments in all of scripture. Jesus sits on the side of the bed. He takes this little girl by the hand. And the Bible, like, it doesn't always give us translations for stuff, but it uses some of the original language here. So it gives us a little translation. That means that Jesus is using some very specific words and we should pay attention to it. So on a cursory reading, it looks like Jesus grabbed this girl's hand and just with all the authority and power went, little girl, I declare to you, get up, which would have been cool. Like, that's fine. That would be a cool thing. But here's the thing. Jesus is acting actually a lot different here. So remember, we've been talking about how Jairus feared for his little girl. That's the language we've been walking around today. Like, I'm a girl dad, okay? I mean, I've got two little boys, but when I became a dad, I was a girl dad. My boys are, let me give you just a quick impression of my sons in the morning. I sneak down the stairs, and my toe touches the top step, and they go, Father, I'm awake. You can get me now. I don't want to go back to bed. I know it's 5.30 in the morning, but I'm ready for the day. I'm like, sons, please just sleep. I just, I gotta read for a minute. And my daughter is like a zombie. She just kind of lays there. She, has, she, she, she nests real bad in her, but she's got pillows and toys and stuff, and I can't even find her most of the days because she's buried. She is not a good waker-upper, okay? That's what I'm trying to say here. My boys are. My girl is not. So here, here's how my mornings go. I go over to her bed. I sit on the side of her bed, and I say, hey, baby, good morning. I rub her back. Sweetheart, it's time to get up. It's time for school. Mama's waiting for you. And that's a very special moment for me. Jesus says, with all the tender care of a father, sweetheart, hey, baby girl, it's time to get up. Go ahead and get up. It's time. And she gets up. This is being in God's family. 
you and I have access to this kind of love. And Jesus cares so much about this little girl that he makes sure in all of the commotion, all of the wild disbelief of the moment, all this confusion and excitement, Jesus reminds her family, get this poor girl something to eat. She's a growing girl. She needs her nourishment. Guys, what other savior would do this? What other love could look like this? Could the law ever adopt us into its family? Could our own self-preservation efforts, do they actually care for our souls? Could this world ever bring us into intimate fellowship with its savior? We're gonna land the plane today with just a small overview of what being in God's family means for us. Go ahead and put this on the screen. Being in God's family means that we have three things. We have identity, we have access, and we have responsibility. And if you guys are taking notes, now's the time. There's some scripture there to help make the case. And I'll explain what these mean. So firstly, when we are adopted into the family of God, that changes who we are on a fundamental level, on a spiritual level, that changes who we are. This is something that only Jesus can do for us. Right? You and I can put on any mask that we want. We can act however we think we need to act. We can portray ourselves however we like. But that does not change who we are. That does not change our identity. Our only power really is just in how others perceive us. That's it. We lack the power to change who we are, but 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, that, tells us that Jesus makes us, quote, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Nothing can change that now. Sin and the law have lost their hold on our lives as Christians. Now, we're still going to sin, but that sin no longer has the power to define who we are in God's eyes. Praise Jesus. Being in God's family means that we have access. Well, access to what? Okay. Access to our Father, the God of creation. We have unlimited, unfettered access to the God of creation. Ephesians 2 tells us that we have access to God in spirit through Christ. See, God is not an absentee father that locks himself in his study all night. Like, he's not the dad that's just for some reason always working on the truck in the garage. As a member of God's household, you have access just as his little son, his little daughter would have because you are eternally his. That's your identity now. You're a member of his family. This means that you don't have to get yourself right before you approach God. You tracking with that? You don't need to exhaust everything and bring God the broken, bloodied mess of your life and just say, can you please fix this? You can still do that, but you can go before then. Like, God's there with you. And moreover, the Bible says in Romans 8, 34, who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is also interceding for us. That's what Romans 8 says. So not only do we have access to our Father always, but we have access to our Savior, Jesus, who is interceding for us at the Father's right hand. Jesus is always going to bat for us. Jesus paid our debts, and as his family, we can trust that that's always going to be the case. That's good news for us. 
And lastly, as a member of God's family, we have responsibility. We've all been a member of a family at some point in our lives. So when we leave the house, we don't merely represent ourselves. Does that make sense? We are a representative of God as a member of his household. Now, this could mean any number of things to you. Most often, how I have heard this point used has been pretty negative. It's been weaponized against people. It's like if we, it's kind of a threat. Like if we misbehave in public, like you'll hurt your witness and then nobody will take Jesus seriously. Like that's not possible, by the way. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. He's never going to be irrelevant. We only really risk making a fool of ourselves. That said, in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Bible says that we are Christ's ambassadors to others. That's what that means. We bear the weight of what is called the ministry of reconciliation. We have a chance to work alongside the Spirit of God in pointing others to a saving faith in Jesus. That is a privilege that we have and a responsibility. So as a member of God's household, we have a responsibility and represent way too close to each other. We have a responsibility to represent and obey the Father out of love. So each one of those points is probably its own sermon or a sermon series. We can't really dive in all the way today. So instead, I'm just going to leave us with these final thoughts. These two stories show us Jesus' power over sin and over illness and over death. Jesus demonstrates his power to Jairus' little girl and the bleeding woman, and he does so with a compassion and a tenderness that is not unlike a father. These stories also go, also show us that when Jesus delivers you, you become his. And when we become his, that should have a very large impact on our lives. So if you're struggling with how Jesus should be act, uh, impacting your life today, if you're struggling with kind of how Jesus plays itself out, Sunday, October 15th, 2023. Just take a moment to remind yourself that you are a member of Jesus' household. You are a child of God. Now, this shouldn't puff you up with pride, but it also shouldn't put the weight of acting perfect on your shoulders. It shouldn't do those two things. That's just gonna weigh you down. Instead, as a member of God's family, this should free you to approach your father with all of your needs, all of your questions, all of your insecurities, and when you do that, you know that he cares for you because God gave Jesus for you. Trust that your father knows what you need. Trust that he will provide it because he loves you. Remember that Jesus held that little girl's hand. Remember that he told her to wake up. Remember that Jesus told the family, get this girl something to eat because he didn't want her to go hungry because that's the care of a father. So what I hope is that this message today empowers you to do less and to trust more. Do less, trust more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that I don't know how to do less and trust more, but I believe that it's something you want for my life. And if anybody else is struggling with that today, God, that we would just go to you with it, that we would trust that you know what we need and you care for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you allow us to call, call you Father. And I know not all of us in this room have healthy relationships with our family. So God, break those cycles. Allow us to come to you as we are, to love you and to trust that you love us. 
as an earthly father never could because you are good and your mercy endures forever. God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Michael. We're going to stand and we're going to respond in song today. So I, I just.